Today marks the start of Holy Week, and uh, Holy Week begins with what is known as Palm Sunday, and Holy Week is, is marked by the days in the life of Jesus that ultimately lead to his false trial, his crucifixion and death, and, and ultimately his resurrection. We're taking a break from 1 John today and next week in order to observe Holy Week because we believe that it is a tremendous opportunity to look back at the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, namely his work on the cross for sinners and how that relates to us today. I wish to begin our time, as I mentioned earlier, by looking at John 12. We're going to be looking at verses 12 through 16, and we're going to be looking at what is known as the triumphal entry of Jesus. I want to give you a little bit of context behind Palm Sunday as we transition into Hebrews 7. And so, man, as I mentioned earlier, I kind of just want to dive in. And so this is beginning in verse 12, and we're going to work our way through verse 16. I'm going to go through a couple of things very, very quickly, because I'd love to spend the majority of our time in Hebrews 7. And so this is what God writes through John. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. In light of what John writes, I want you to walk away with four observations in this passage. And again, this is going to transition us into Hebrews 7, and I'm going to try and tie it all together toward the end of our time. Nevertheless, I want you to look at these quick, these quick four observations. The first one is prophecy. That is, Jesus riding into Jerusalem on a donkey is Jesus fulfilling the prophecy of the prophet Zechariah who made this claim more than 500 years before the birth of Jesus. Here's, here's what I want you to know about prophecy. I want you to know that even in the midst of uncertainty, God's word can be trusted because God's word is true. It is breathed out by his spirit. The second thing I want you to observe are the palm branches. There's a little bit of irony that is associated with the palm branches, the palms, and it's really the color green. It's meant to represent victory. The irony here is that they are praising Jesus for the victory that they will that he will have for them. However, they are looking at political revival, not necessarily the redemption of sinners. Number 3 is Jerusalem. Jesus's entry into Jerusalem is significant because the last time that he was in Jerusalem, which was about the start of his ministry, he was kicked out and rejected. And now he rides back into Jerusalem, fulfilling prophecy, and he rides back into Jerusalem. Check this. This is going to connect to Hebrews 7. He rides back into Jerusalem willingly. 
he willingly rides back into Jerusalem knowing that it will lead to his death. Fourthly, the confusion of the disciples. Like the people, they don't necessarily comprehend that Jesus was not riding in for the purpose of overthrowing a government or seeking political revival, but the redemption of sinners. Check it. The disciples walked with Jesus. They saw him perform miracles. They saw him heal people. They saw him preach God's word. They were with him day in and day out for three years. Yet even as Jesus rides into Jerusalem, rides into his death, they are still confused. And in light of that, it it brings us, all of this actually, let me back up, these observations bring it to you and me. And a question is presented for you and I. It's a question that I think should be on the table for the disciples. I know for certain it's a question that's on the table for us. And that is, what kind of a king are you expecting? I'll ask it one more time. What kind of a king are you expecting? You see, I I ask that in the present tense because I'm genuinely curious. Like the people in Jerusalem or the disciples, we are not exempt from looking for or expecting a different kind of king, one that will fulfill our desires, our felt needs, our cravings. Maybe you're looking for a king. Whether you know Jesus or not, maybe you're looking for a king. Maybe you're looking for the king of security. And in this season that has rocked you, whether that would be just overall safety because your house is a fortress and you have booby traps and the latest alarm systems and cameras, maybe that's security in the midst of finances. Maybe that's security because you're simply not scared. Maybe you're looking for the king of affluence. That is, that you find security and money and wealth. Maybe you're looking for the king of significance. That is, that you find significance, uh, that you find value and dignity in yourself through other people. Maybe you find significance through things like sex. That having sex with someone who isn't your spouse is what brings you dignity and worth and value and significance. Maybe it's just involvement in other people's lives. That simply being involved in the life of friends and community and family, that brings you significance. That brings you worth. Maybe you are pursuing significance because you're a parent and you've done such a great job and now things are being rocked because of the season. Maybe you pursue significance in terms of your marriage because you believed that just because you both love Jesus, it's all going to work out. And right now, as we're all experiencing a similar, if not the same season, our king or the king of significance is being rocked because it's just not all, it's not all it turned out to be. Maybe you pursue the king of addiction 
Maybe you are looking for satisfaction in substance abuse. Maybe you're looking for satisfaction in escapism, whether that's something like pornography or using other people. Maybe you're just looking for the king of religion. Doing all of the good things, doing everything right, and on top of that, being right about whatever the circumstance is. And while you may not necessarily articulate it this way, your heart bleeds that you are better than others, and God has to take notice of all these wonderful sacrifices that you are making. But the truth is that religion is simply activity without heart. We can worship God with our hands and with our amens. We can worship him even by giving money. But if our hearts are far removed, we're we're just like the Pharisees. We're simply being religious. We are like the the person that, that God speaks of in Jeremiah 17. He says, thus says the Lord, cursed is the man who trusts in man and who makes flesh his strength, whose heart turns away from the Lord. Maybe in your pursuit of the king of religion, you're not really trusting in the person and work of Jesus. You're simply just trusting yourself. Maybe you're just self-righteous. Maybe you're looking for the king of knowledge, that in this season, the more information you can obtain, the more data that you can receive, then that is what ultimately is not only going to make you rational, but save you. The truth is that each one of these kings is simply not suited to meet your needs. They are not suited to meet your spiritual needs. They are not suited to meet your eternal needs. Many of them are not even suited to meet your physical needs. And while the looks of each one of these kings is constantly changing, the promise of the gospel is that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are unchanging. And so what I want us to do is, I want us to go to Hebrews now to see why Jesus, the unexpected king, is our most fitting king. And so if you have your Bibles with you, turn with me to Hebrews 7. I'm going to read those verses once more. I know Rick did so earlier. I'm going to read those verses once more, and then I'm going to pray, and we'll we'll keep moving. So this is what the author of Hebrews writes. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests. But the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. Let's pray. God, as we come before you, I'm reminded of the psalmist's words in, I think it's Psalm 103, where he simply cries out, My soul, praise Yahweh. And so God, my my prayer this morning 
is that our soul would praise you. That, that the posture, the disposition that we adopt this morning is one of praise and worship. There isn't a single person who has not been affected by the current climate, by the current season. Everybody is working through adjustments. Everybody is working through uncertainty. And everybody is simply waiting. And so, God, would you, through your Spirit, not only be present among us this morning, but be at work in us, leading us, leading us to a place where our soul simply cries out and praises you and worships you. God, as we look to your word in Hebrews, Holy Spirit, would you convict and challenge the condition of our hearts? Would you comfort us with your grace at the same time? That just because we are in a season of to an extent, waiting does not mean that transformation does not happen. God, as we read that Jesus is our fitting King, may it be through your Spirit and the power and clarity of your Word, may it cause an effect that on the other side of this, we're more like Jesus and less like ourselves. So God, we thank you for this opportunity to worship you. We thank you for this opportunity to dive into your word. And so Holy Spirit, would you, would you lead us this morning? And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. As I just read Hebrews 7, the author, what he essentially does is that he lists and expands on the qualifications for Jesus being our fitting king. And I love this because it's just a list. And so we get to walk through each one quickly, uh, but carefully. And before we dive into these qualifications, I want you to take notice in verse 26 because he uses the word fitting. He goes on to write, for it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest. The word fitting in the context of Hebrews 7, ultimately what he is doing is he is suggesting or he is proclaiming that the role of Jesus as our king, as our high priest is perfect for him. It is appropriate for him. It was designed specifically for him. You may have heard the, the expression when sometimes people say, oh, that's, that's perfect for you. Maybe it's an outfit or it's a circumstance or it's a certain kind of personality that is fitting for that person. That's what the author of Hebrews is ultimately getting at, that the role of the high priest, the role of king is fitting for Jesus. And so he goes on to expand and list seven different qualifications for Jesus being our fitting king. And so we're going to just walk through them. And so the first one is he writes that Jesus is holy. Now the word holy means set apart. It means that he is separate. Holiness is the very essence of his being. At this point, you might be saying, well, 
in the pages of Scripture, God says that because he is holy, we ought to be holy. And that is true. Sinners by faith in Christ alone become, that's the key word, become holy. Jesus, on the other hand, is altogether holy. He is perfect. He is completely moral and incorruptible. He is divine and holy, set apart. It is his essence. It is his character. The second thing that the or the second qualifications that the author lists is that Jesus is innocent. That is that Jesus is free from sin. Now check it. He is free from sin both in action and motivation. What that means is that Jesus is completely free from corruption, that his heart is completely, truly pure. Proverbs 4 says that uh, out of the heart flow the springs of life. That out of, at, at, the, at the core of a person, at the heart of a person, we're going to see their character and their personality. Elsewhere, Jesus goes on to say that it's not the external that defiles us. It's actually what's coming from within your heart that defiles you. Here in the word innocent, what the author is telling us is that Jesus is free from that corruption. He is 100% pure in heart. So he's not just morally good in his action. He is spiritually good because his heart is pure. The third qualification is that he is, that Jesus is unstained. Now, this is twofold. On one hand, what the author is referring to is he's pointing back to the Old Testament, specifically Leviticus 21. And in Leviticus 21, those who were considered priests had to meet certain biblical standards. And so when the author writes that Jesus is unstained, one of the first things he mentions or one of the first things he means is that Jesus has absolutely met those standards that we see in Leviticus 21. Additionally, um, the second part that he means, or what he means additionally, is that not only is Jesus free from sin, but because he is free from sin, this means that Jesus never gave in to temptation. I want to I park there for a little bit. Jesus is unstained because not only is he free from sin, but that that means it is because he is free from sin that he never gave in to temptation. That that should tell you and me something. The first thing that it should tell us is that you and I do not know temptation like Jesus did. Because you and I repeatedly give in to temptation. Whether that's physical temptation, emotional temptation, mental temptation, whatever it is, you and I repeatedly give in to temptation. So at one point, for some time, temptation might flee, but then it comes back. Throughout the life of Jesus, he never gave in to temptation, which brings us to point number two. Primarily, Jesus did not give in to temptation because he depended on the Holy Spirit. Which brings me to a couple of more thoughts As I mentioned earlier, I wanted to park here. A couple weeks ago, a couple months ago, we were having a cookout at my house for our MC, our missional community. 
And one of the guys in our church, uh, he, he's, he's the guy I go to um, so that I can get updates on the sphere of politics. I'm not very political, politically savvy. Anyway, he's catching me up on all the things, and I'm asking some questions. And one of the other guys joins us, joins the conversation. And at the end of the conversation, he goes on to say, I'm glad you're telling Marco this because he thinks rationally. Uh, I don't. Um, I'm just very emotional. So therefore, uh, I, I don't like kind of the, I, guess, I suppose, the structure or the information. Not really sure. And that conversation made me think about this. So Jesus never gave in to temptation, and in addition to that, primarily he didn't give in to temptation because he depended on the Holy Spirit. That conversation made me think that oftentimes you and I like to rely on the Father, Son, and personality test. The Father, Son, and the way we are wired. Father, Son, and our Enneagram number. I'm not saying that personality tests are bad. That's not what I'm saying, right? And I'm not even saying that you don't trust God. The question is, do you depend on the Holy Spirit? You see, sometimes I think many of you want to anchor yourselves instead of the work of the Spirit in you, you want to anchor yourself in your personality test. You want to justify what you do, what you say, how you feel, Not so that you could be heard and cared for, but because a sheet of paper says you are wired this way. And again, personality tests aren't bad. I'm not against them. And I'm not even saying that you don't trust God. I just don't know that you depend on the Holy Spirit. At the end of the day, Jesus never gave in to temptation because he depended on the Holy Spirit. Like, I'm glad you took your personality test, but no one cares. The question is, do you depend on the Holy Spirit? Because the same Holy Spirit that dwelled in the life of Jesus dwells in the life of the Christian. I pray that we don't forget that. And I think the truth is we do. Do you depend on the Holy Spirit? Number four, the fourth qualification, the the author of Hebrews says that he is separate from sinners. Now, this doesn't mean that Jesus wasn't friends with sinners. This doesn't mean that Jesus didn't hang out with them. On the contrary, when we read through the Gospels, we see that that's all Jesus is doing. That's one of the main things. He's constantly hanging out with people. In fact, that's what makes him so human. That's what makes him fully human, that he can actually relate and sympathize with us. But not only was Jesus fully man, he was also also fully God. And what that means is, what that means is that it was only the grace of God that could satisfy the wrath of God on the cross. It was only Jesus who can reconcile man to God. So in that way, yes, he is separate from us. That doesn't mean we don't have a relationship with him. But it was only the grace of God that could satisfy the wrath of God on the cross for sinners. In short, it was only Jesus that can reconcile us to the Father. 
The fifth qualification is that Jesus is exalted. Though he died on the cross and was buried through the power of the Holy Spirit, he was raised from the dead on the third day, sending the message or sending the the proclamation of victory to Satan, sin, and hell, that not even death could hold him back. Jesus being exalted is that he is alive and well and is seated at the right hand of the Father. And one day he will come back again in glory to proclaim or to reclaim, I should say, his bride, the church. Jesus is exalted. The sixth qualification, he goes on to say that that Jesus does not require ongoing sacrifice. I want to read that sentence just briefly. The author of Hebrews says, He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. If you're taking notes, I want you to circle the word himself. See, Jesus is the one ultimate and perfect sacrifice. In the Old Testament, priests were appointed by God, uh, to approach him. But they could only do that by first sacrificing an animal on behalf of their sins. Once that happened, then they could approach God and sacrifice more animals on behalf of the sins of the people. What the author is saying here is, Jesus doesn't have to perform ongoing sacrifices because Jesus in and of himself is holy and perfect, unstained and without blemish. You see, the only thing Jesus has when he approaches God is himself. Now you tie that back into John 12 where we see Jesus riding into Jerusalem. Not only do we see him riding into Jerusalem to fulfill a prophecy, we see him ride into Jerusalem to his death willingly. He does so willingly. He's not being forced to. He doesn't have a gun to his head. He is riding into Jerusalem for the death of, or excuse me, for, for, uh, into his own death on behalf of sinners. The only thing Jesus has when he approaches God is himself. And finally, the seventh qualification is that the former priests, those of the Old Testament, were weak whereas Jesus is perfect. The author continues, For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. Here's what he's saying. The priests were weak for multiple reasons. To begin, they were men who were sinful, and corrupt in their nature. Additionally, they died. When one died, whoever was next in line in the genealogy was up. They were weak. They were incomplete. They were simply a foreshadow of who was to come and what he was to do. Jesus is perfect, and he, his office of king and priest, is forever. Church, the beauty of Jesus is that he satisfies your needs through his obedience, his life, and his work. 
That's what the author of Hebrews is getting at. You and I were, were constantly looking for a multitude of kings to meet our needs. And they continue to leave us hungry. We might be full, but we're not satisfied. Jesus, on the other hand, satisfies your needs. Because there's no additional sacrifice needed. Some of you think you need to sacrifice so that you can get into God's good graces. Grace is a gift from God. It is unmerited favor towards sinners. There is no sacrifice needed because He is the perfect sacrifice. You see, it is God who says that He will remove our heart of stone and place in us a heart of flesh and then implant His Spirit within us. Thirst and hunger are met. Satisfaction is received through the redemption of Jesus alone. The question that is left on the table for you and I is what are you afraid of? What are you afraid of in knowing Jesus? From John 12 to Hebrews 7, particularly in Hebrews 7, what the author tells us is that Jesus never and does not fail to comfort us. He does not fail to demonstrate grace to us. He does not fail in receiving the outcast, and he is able to save anyone. In the same chapter, in verse 25, I want you to listen to this. The author says, consequently, Jesus is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. Jesus is able to save anyone, including the uttermost. And he beckons you. He draws you to himself so that you would be brought into a relationship with the Father. Jesus may not be your expectant king, but he is the most fitting king who meets our needs through his life, through his death and resurrection. Christian, and I'm going to close with this. Christian, Jesus is your fitting king. Why are you looking for another? What are you afraid of, Christian? Repent of your sin. Turn away from self-righteousness. In fact, put it to death. Stop working without a heart change. Return to Jesus. And if you don't know Jesus, I want you to know that Jesus is the fitting king. Why are you looking for that in others? What are you afraid of? I know many of you might even try to relate to Jesus based on the experience you've had maybe previously in church settings or maybe you have some Christian friends and so you're trying to connect some experience. Let me encourage you that if you're joining us online, you're new to Storehouse, let me, let me encourage you with this. Open a Bible. If you don't have one, let, let me know. I'll hook you up. I'll go to your place and I'll give you a Bible. Ask your Christian friends 
Or maybe you do have a Bible that's on some bookcase. I would encourage you to open up the Gospel of John and read about the person and work of Jesus. See how he is the fitting king before you look to experience, look to God's word. And in addition, let me just encourage you because I love you. Repent of your sin. Turn away from false kings. They're not going to satisfy. Come to Jesus in faith and repentance. I promise you this. This is from his word. So so don't take it from me. This is from his word. He is ready and willing to pardon any sinner. At the end of the day, church, Jesus is our fitting king because it is only Jesus that can satisfy our needs. Let's pray. God, as we close our time, may, may, man, may your word reign loudly in our hearts. God, may we use this time of response to examine ourselves. Sometimes we only think about pursuing kings or idols as, as the bad things. But the truth is that they could even be good things. And so God, may we examine our hearts. Holy Spirit, please please don't allow us to just ignore this. Pull us in, uh, convict us, challenge us, compel us to examine the condition of our hearts so that we would be drawn closer to Jesus. God, as we close our time, I'm so grateful and thankful for the work of Jesus for us on the cross because the the implications of that for the sinner, for the one in need is a new heart. It's a new mind. It means that satisfactions have, our satisfaction has been met in Jesus. And so God, as we move forward in our week, as we move forward in our time, and may we just repeatedly surrender ourselves to you so that we would be made more like Jesus, so that we would be utterly filled with the Holy Spirit, and so that we would give you glory, all for your glory and our good. Storehouse, it was so wonderful to worship with you, uh, to preach God's word, um, I'm looking forward to jumping back into 1 John in a couple of weeks, but I'm also just really looking forward to our time this week as we look ahead to Good Friday and to Easter Sunday. And so I would leave you just with two things. The first one would be, and in in an effort for us to continue to not just provide content for you, but continue to the, the mission of the church um, man, one of the ways in which you can respond is by giving, namely by, by giving online. God calls us to give sacrificially and, and faithfully. Um, and so if you have not given, I would encourage you to visit the website and set up a, uh, an account. If you are new and you're, you're joining us, we don't want your money. We're just super thankful that you are here 
with us, listening to, to God's Word, uh, invested in what God has to say for you. Uh, so thank you for that. Uh, man, I, I want to close with a, with a benediction. Earlier, I opened up with part of Jeremiah 17. Uh, I want to close with Jeremiah 17, verses 7 through 8. In verse 5, we saw the person who trusts in their own strength and trusts in their own flesh. Here is the contrast to that beginning in verse 7. God says through Jeremiah, Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is the Lord. He is like a tree planted by water that sends out its roots by, its, by the stream and does not fear when heat comes, for its leaves remain green and is not anxious in the year of drought, for it does not cease to bear fruit. Storehouse, I love you. I miss you. I'll see you on Friday night. Enjoy the rest of your week. Amen.